Hey there, welcome to the More Civil Podcast. My name is Mo. I created this podcast as a resource for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them to share stories and processes and build community around important issues. On this show, you get to hear amazing stories from people like you who show us how to get more out of life. The stories featured on this platform are by people whose journey I'm inspired by, and most importantly, people who have been courageous and vulnerable to be open about their life stories. And I hope that in turn, you'll find these stories inspiring. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, I have um, a very important guest, and I will explain why I call him important, because he speaks to my heart um, for, uh, with two of his missions, travels and music. And um, I found him online while I was doing just a research about Lagos, Nigeria, which is where I'm from, as some of you know. And apparently he visited Lagos, Nigeria about two years ago. And I clicked on more of his articles and I realized that he had a mission to go to as many places as possible. So everyone, welcome, join me welcoming Mr. Randy to the podcast, uh, or Rambling Randy, as he's called, our dogs. So what should we call you, Randy? <laughs> you can call me Randy. It's uh, it's so nice to uh, nice to talk to you and nice to meet you. And I I was looking forward to this. So yeah, it's great to great to be on the show. I hope we're gonna have a good time today. We're gonna have some fun. Thank you, thank you. And um, so I, I I told you guys that the two things that I said I loved about what he does, and that's travel and music. So he's on a quest to travel to all 195 countries by 2020. And as at the time of this recording, I think you've hit 142, there about? 142, yes, that's right. 142, 142. And he's not just one that goes to a country and then, you know, um, you know, stops talking about it. Like, he has a blog, guys, and his blog is so packed. And I'm, I'm just going to talk about some of the things that I really liked about him. And as I was reading more about him, I realized that we also have something in common, our love for Anthony Bourdain. And so I was like, wow, because I always tell my friends, like, you know, Anthony Bourdain had my day job, had my dream job. I yeah. wish I could just do everything he did. And when he passed on, I legit cried because I felt like a part of, you know, just what I loved, you know, passed away. Even though I didn't Me know too. him personally. But Me yeah. too, yep. Yeah. Anyways, um, so I know you grew up in, you, you moved everywhere, actually, you know, Arizona, California, all of that. I'm just curious, you know, tell us a little bit more about you and um, basically how you got started, especially with the music part, because I think it's very important. By the way, when Anthony Bourdain passed, I think what made him so amazing as a as a a person and as a, a traveler and a writer and and um you know in I guess in some ways we can call him an entertainer, but I think what made him so good is you thought, just like you said, you thought a part of you died. And yeah. I never felt I'd never felt that with any other celebrity. I felt exactly. bad. Exactly. Exactly. When my favorite, I- yeah. I cried. I cried. I cried. Like, you know, like, I, you know, I was really sad when Robin Williams died. And there's a lot yeah. of celebrities that I was really sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my favorite um, uh, artists, music artists, Fife Dog from A Tribe Called Quest passed away. Oh, I was, yeah, yeah. It's like one of my favorite groups. But something about Anthony, it felt like it felt like a member of your family. And I just exactly. I couldn't believe it. Exactly. I had to ask my friend, like, is this normal that I'm mourning him? Like, so on and she was like, no, that's totally okay. Because, you know, you loved him and you adored him. I mean, I went as far as reading just everything that happened in that hotel in France, you know, and just, you know, find out more, like, how, why would he kill himself and things like that. You know, I have more questions and answers right now, but I'm really, really glad that um, his legacy as far as what he did, just going out there and just talking to people and communicating through food. I do a little mini version of that in my house here in Oklahoma. 
Okay. Rather than traveling now, I have people from all over the world just, you know, come have a meal and then we just we talk about stuff together. So I guess the part of him still lives on because he's inspired that a lot in me. You know, I do the same thing when I, when I travel and I'll, I'll find myself sitting somewhere and I, I call it um, an Anthony, Anthony Bourdain moment. Oh, and by Anthony. the way, I know, that, I know that I'm not even 1% as cool as he is. Oh, no, you're cool. Maybe not as cool as he is, but you're cool. Like, you're uh, cool. <laughs> you know, th- there are some times, like, for example, I can remember I was in Kinshasa, uh, Congo, uh-huh. a few months ago, and I'm sitting at this table on this you know, dirt parking lot on the side of the street, eating, uh, you know, eating uh, local food with, with a couple of new friends. And we're just yeah. talking about life. And I always tell myself, okay, this is an Anthony Bourdain moment. So uh-uh. he, yeah. he lives with a lot of us. But to answer your question, um, I was born in Chicago. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, a couple of years in Florida. I moved to Arizona when I was 15. I started radio when I was 15. Um, all of my dreams came true. You know, let me give a shout out to Tucson, Arizona, which is the city that I kind of claim that I grew up in because that's the city that I got a lot of my first sin, my yeah. first car, my first girlfriend, my first house, but most importantly, my first job. And uh, my career as a radio host started in Tucson when I was 15 years old. And, um, and the rest is history. Today, I live in San Diego, California. Um, I've also lived in Brazil. And uh, as you mentioned, I'm on a quest to see every country in the world. Wow. I mean, when I read your bio, I mean, <laughs> number one, you're like your first guest that sent me two kinds of bios. And it wasn't just like, you know, pick here and there. I was like, where do I even get started? You know, talking about this mm-hmm. person. So, I mean, curious to you, uh, was, you know, at 15, that's usually young age where you're trying to like battle teenage acne and whatever, you know, comes with all of that. But you just went out there and even how you talked about starting, like in high school and how you feel for somebody and before you knew it. Your show was being syndicated across the world. I mean, what was that like? What would you credit as one of the things that helped you, you know, not just start out so early, but, you know, maintain that strict to the very moment that we're talking about right now? There was one lesson I learned in my life, one absolutely strategic, um, powerful, strong lesson that I learned so early, firsthand. It wasn't taught to me in a book. It wasn't taught to me um, by by someone telling me it, I, I learned it firsthand and I, I use it every day and I've used it since I learned it. And, and that helped me. And if I could tell, you know, when I, sometimes I speak to kids in school and I always, always give them this lesson. I was very lucky to learn it at an early age. Um, I wanted to be in radio so badly since I was 12, since I was 12 or 13, I, I, I found my true passion and I was 15 years old. I just moved to Tucson and I was working part-time for a landscaping company. And in Tucson, it's literally like 120 degrees in the summer. It's so hot. This was, this was backbreaking work. This was going and, you know, digging in the dirt and, and digging up cactuses. And, and no shit, by the way, because that place is arid. We used to live in New Mexico, so I knew exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Oh, I mean, the desert is brutal. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but I remember coming home, from, coming home from a hard day at work. I'm, uh, you know, I'm only 15. Um, but but I've always had a work ethic, but I came home and, and my mom was really excited. And my mom knew that I wanted to be in radio and mm. she had the newspaper out. And in, in the classified section of the newspaper, for kids who don't know, the newspaper was this piece of paper <laughs> we could read back in the day. And, um, in the classified ad, there was, a, there, was an ad, there was an advertisement for um, a disc jockey, a mobile DJ for like an entertainment company, not for a radio station, but for a company that did parties and events. And anyway, there's this um, uh, job advertisement and it said DJ wanted, um, it was the description of the job. And then it said experience preferred, but mm. not necessary. Meaning if you were, if you were new, yeah. they, they, they may think about training you. So my mom was really excited to show me this. 
And I shrugged it off at 15 years old. I said, there's no way, mom, if it, you know, I'm only 15. I have no experience. They're going to laugh at me. And basically I told my mom, forget about it. No way. I'm not even going to, not even going to ask or inquire because I know, or I think there's no way I get that job. So life went on the next morning. I got up and I went to work and went to this horrible landscaping job and broke my back all day. And I came back home that next day in the mid afternoon and my mom was still excited. And she says, guess what? She says, I called the company and I talked, I talked to the owner, Ron, and told him all about you. And he's really excited to talk to you. Well, you have to understand as a 15 year old, I just thought my life has ended. 15, 15 <laughs> like for mom. me is, yeah, 15. To, now, look, if my mom did, did that today, I would laugh. I'd be like, oh, that's cute. That, but back then, yeah. you know, you're trying to be, as, as a guy, you're trying to be Mr. Joe Cool. Yeah. As a 15-year-old kid, you didn't want to have anything to do with your mom. And so I was, I wanted to uh, crawl under a rock and die. I said, Mom, are you, you, you called? This is horrible. Why did you do that? I was so angry. Well, I had to call this guy because he had called and set up a, a call with him. And I was just, I called him and I'm like apologizing. I'm so sorry my mom called. It's so embarrassing. And and, uh, you know, we chat and he ends up inviting me to his office for an interview. I go to the interview, which my mom had to drive me to, by the way, because I didn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. End up getting, end up getting the job. And I remember him calling a week later saying, Hey, I'd like you to be our next DJ for this company. And believe it, but it was that very moment that I such a valuable lesson, Mo. And the lesson yeah. was you, if you have nothing to lose, you got to go show for things. Up. Yeah. Just show up. You never but, know. But as a kid, though, it's like you have to be, for me, I had to be shown that. I didn't believe it. And oh. so what I did is I took that lesson at 15, I get a head start. And I took that lesson and I just started applying it exponentially. I started applying it even places where my mom didn't, didn't think I would get the job. Mom, really? <laughs> she started it. <laughs> and Right. And over and over and over and over again. So you know, one of the pivotal moments was I remember being 17 years old and I was a senior in high school. And I, I was full-time on the radio. So I had a full-time nighttime radio job at the local radio station. And the people that were coming in to be my interns were college students or college nice. graduates. I remember. Mm-hmm. So I just, I simply practiced that my entire life. And I still do that. And I still ask for things that are way above my experience. And, and now and then I get a yes. And it still happens to this day. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a really cool lesson to learn. I hope it. I wish every kid could learn that lesson as early as I did because it really paid off. And I can imagine that through your mentorship program, like you talked about, you probably instilling that in the you know, hearts and minds of these kids that, hey, anything is possible. You just have to believe if I can do it, you can too. Along that lines, um, I found that even before I got that job in radio, uh, when I was 13 and I, I I stumbled on what I wanted to do and it clicked. Once it clicked, it's like, oh my God, that's what I want to do. Because when you're a kid, you have different ideas. You go through like, you know, every month you want to be a different person. You want to be a fireman one month and a pilot the next month or parent. Although I had great role models, yeah. but I was start I was starting to do some dumb things. You know, when you're a, when you're a young teenage boy, you do stupid stuff. And um, Part of course, you know, yeah. 
yeah, I was starting to do some dumb things. And as soon as I realized what I wanted to do, my grades by themselves turned into, you know, from C's and D's because I realized, you know, I'm going to, I want a scholarship. I want to, you know, I want to take some classes in, in college. And so, yeah, it, uh, it changed my life. And I only wish that for, for every young person in the world. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, that's very inspirational. I, I grew up loving radio. You know, I didn't think I was ever going to be on radio. And I remember always going to bed with a transistor radio by my bedside. And so when I decided to do something out of my life as a side, you know, to my, as a, like, almost like a pursuing like a lifelong dream of mine, this podcast, you know, has been just an outlet to fulfill that dream. But yeah, radio just, you know, I think saved my life in so many ways. So thanks for sharing your story. So I know currently you are the creator, producer, and the host of the internationally syndicated show, The Sunday Night Slow Dams. And can you tell us a little bit more about it and what you do, what kind of songs you play and all of that? Which, by the way, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, do you, have you heard the show in your hometown, Mo? No, 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 I haven't. But I know it's on 92.3 or so. In, uh, so if you're in Oklahoma City, it's on 104. So you have to listen tonight, okay? Okay. I'll find it. Uh, Good version. I, I grew up with my parents listening to music and, um, you know, they listened to a different type of music. My dad would listen to oldies, you know, music from the fifties, Jimmy Buffett. And my oh, yeah. mom would, my mom would listen to oldies. My mom would listen to Johnny Mathis and, and, uh, and, and Neil Diamond. So I grew and Herb Albert. So I grew up with, with really good music, but I, I was never exposed to, uh, to urban music, to R and B music. I was never exposed to that. And, um, my, my preteen years, um, I up to this, you know, old music that my parents would listen to, and till, till today, it's still great music. But I didn't, I didn't want to listen to like my dad would make fun of like pop music, of like he'd make fun of <laughs> rap music, and you know, I wanted to be, I, I wanted to be like my dad. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, rap music must be bad, and you know, pop music must be bad. But as a kid, you, you know, I just I couldn't get away from it. And I was, as I was in fifth or sixth grade, I was kind of sucked into what everybody was listening to, and everyone was listening to for the most part in my school. Everybody was listening to pop music. So they were listening to like MC Hammer and Millie Vanilli and, you know, Paula Abdul and Janet Jackson. And I really started liking the music. I didn't realize it, but at the time, all of the pop music I liked was on the rhythmic, was on the urban kind of leaning side, meaning, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really into Guns N' Roses or Poison or, you know, a lot of, you know, heavy metal was like really, Mm -hmm. really big during that time. But I didn't even realize at the time there were such things as, black or urban radio stations. I, I just didn't know. I was a kid. I was oblivious. And so I discovered urban music, specifically slow jams, one night after I moved to Florida. And it was my very first night. It was a, a brand new house, brand new room. And I my my treasured alarm clock, a little black, little black box from GE called, uh, called remember that was the name of it. It was just, I think I got it at Walmart <laughs> or something, but it was this little box. As you said, it was like your transistor radio. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it was a treasure to me. If I had ever lost that thing, I would, I would have been lost. And I, plug, <laughs> I plugged the radio in. Now keep in mind in Los Angeles, I was listening to the, uh, the top 40 radio station. Yeah, so yeah. now I'm in Florida and all the radio dials and frequencies are different. So I plug in the radio and of course I'm getting static because it's set on the old, uh, the old frequency from Los Angeles. And this is what changed my life. I, went to the left to the right with my radio dial had oh, I went to the, had I went to the right I would have landed on the pop music channel for wow talk about watershed moment right there <laughs> I, I went to the left I didn't go to the right I went to the left and I hit on a station which was 1.9 on the FM oh. dial and the station was called 102 jams and they happened to be playing a late night show called the quiet storm okay and the song that was the song that was playing was a song by a group 
uh, called Troop, called All I Do Is Think Of You. And to this day, it's one of my top five favorite songs. Oh. And it's a song about a kid who can't wait to go to school the next day to see this girl that, <laughs> that he has a crush on. And at the time, I had this crush on this girl in eighth grade. Um, long story short, the song spoke to me. And I, my ears perked up and I said, and then the next song turned on and, and spoke to me. And then the next song and the next song. And then after about four or five songs, I heard this rain sound effect. And this DJ came on with this really, really deep voice. voice yeah, and like yours, this, I can imagine. Because you have a very good radio voice, by the way. A thousand times better than my voice. I do not, <laughs> I do not have a great voice. But, but he comes on and, and his style and his presentation was just very different. He was, instead of yelling and, and, and hyper and talking fast, talking very slow and he was doing dedications and he was saying hello to to mo and randy in oklahoma city and he was wow. is all this and that was the moment i was exposed to urban music and black music and it was also a time where a lot of the music audiences were separated mo you know i'm amazed at this generation when you when you look at someone's playlist it's got everything but yeah when i was we're when i was <laughs> when i was a kid in the early 90s it was very very segregated you know you you know, you had one part of the population listen to one type of music and the other population listened to the other type of music. Case in point, um, you know, the very first radio contest I won, I won tickets to see the OJs and the Rude Boys and Levert in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And my mom and I were the only white people there. And I didn't mind it at all. It didn't bother <laughs> me. But it goes to show you what a different generation it was. And yeah. I remember going to that show and, you know, 4,000 black folks and and my mom and I, and we laughed and we thought it was fun. We're the, only, we're the only white people here. And it's very, it's very different today. Today, um, I think, maybe not in every city, but I think in, in a lot of cities, you go to concerts and it's everybody. Everybody, together. But, yeah, yeah. But back, my point is I had an affinity towards, towards black music very early. And my kids, my, my friends uh, in class thought I was crazy. They're like, this is music you're listening to. And I was, I had my Walkman on and I was listening to, you know, Gerald Levert and the OJs. Yeah. And yeah. riff and mid condition and, and it was just, it was a special time for me. And I think that's just the beauty of music, just how that power has to like unite us and you know give us like a commonality. I highly believe that. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, I think the final question I want to ask regarding music would be before we go to travel, which is also my favorite part. Would be um, so you have a syndicated show; it's twenty four hours, all show, jams radio, and you also on iHeartRadio. What are some of the challenges in you know having a syndicated show, and how did you pull that off? I mean, the syndication that is. I started a show called uh, Sunday Night Slow Jams in nineteen ninety four. Uh, I was I was seventeen. It was in Tucson. It was in the, the little little AM radio station, um, and I you know that that show would, has has always been my passion, and um, you know from the very beginnings it really didn't didn't make me any money. I was just doing it on the weekend as a as almost a hobby. I worked full time Monday through Friday doing a regular show, but on Sundays I would come in and I would I would bring in my own CDs. The program would let me bring in my own the show that I just and you know for all intents and purposes it was. It was like a child to me. I, I, I raised it from a baby. And um, I changed radio stations a couple of times in, in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And the show would always come with me. And we always had really, really good, good, good ratings. And, um, you know, years later, I, I would have friends tell me, you know, you should syndicate. And I never thought that my voice was good enough. I never had one of those really, really, really deep, thunderous voices that these, these quiet storm hosts had um, 
that I listened to growing up as a, as a, as a kid. So I always dismissed it. And when friends said you should syndicate it, I was like, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not half as good as those guys. But somewhere along the line, a few years later, I had two radio stations that I knew personally uh, ask me if, hey, would you be able to send us a copy of your show and we'll run it on our stations? Mm-hmm. And at that same time, I was building a studio inside my house so things kind of, the, you know, they say the stars align. The stars kind of just align. So here I am with a studio in my house and mm-hmm. two other stations in different parts of the country asking they could run the show. So it was a very rudimentary start, but I had, at the beginning, I had three radio stations running the show and a, uh, a 1-800 line coming into my house and I would answer phone calls. And, wow. you know, it was, just, it was just three stations. But the ratings on those two other stations improved greatly just as my home station did. So now, you know, I always wondered, I said, well, we talked about Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma was one of my first affiliates. And I knew the station did good in Arizona, but I said, well, this show work in Oklahoma. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it will. And sure enough, it did. We were number one after one ratings period. So, you know, three stations turned into six and six turned into 12. At 27 stations, I signed a syndication deal with a, uh, with a syndication company. Yeah. And uh, fast forward today, we're on about 200 radio stations, including 14 countries, including Lagos, Nigeria and Kenya. And um, it's a dream come true for me. I absolutely love it. Um, the challenge, I'm glad you asked that. The challenge yeah. is simply um, getting on radio stations is a challenge. For example, I may call a radio station. I'll give you an example. I'm, I've been trying okay. to get on in Kansas City for decades. And for some reason, the radio stations in Kansas City, they, they just won't put my show on. And, oh. you know, they don't owe me anything. They, you know, they certainly, I'm certainly not owed anything. I'm not entitled to anything. It's up to them. Um, but it's frustrating because now we're on 200 radio stations and I'm, I'm, I'm able to tell a station like, like the station in Kansas City, hey, look, these are the stations I'm on and these are the ratings that I'm bringing. This is a, success, a successful show can I please be a part of your station? And yeah. you know, to this day, uh, Kansas city and many other stations, you know, have not uh, put my show on, but again, I, I'm entitled to nothing. I'm happy. I'm very happy to be on 200 stations, but the challenge is getting on more stations. On more stations. Yeah. But I think also if we think about just the internet radio, like just how easily accessible that is, I'm sure you're definitely having more rich than you think. Yeah, you know, um, you know, all these stations stream. Uh, we're on iRadio. Uh, you know, I'll give you the example. Dallas and Houston are two markets that we're not in yet. It drives me crazy. However, we do have a lot of listeners that listen online from Dallas and Houston. So, yeah, no, you're, you're completely right. And the, yeah. the, the entertainment and digital landscape is changing so fast every single day. So um, it's nice to be able to be heard around the world and really heard by anyone. All right. And final question on this, like, you know, 10 years, five years down the line, what will be your hope for, you know, slow jams or whatever music ventures you go into? What's your hope? What's your long-term goal? I've always wanted to be on every, every market in the country. And I've wanted to share the music with every single city. So, you know, really uh, today we're on 200 stations. I hope in, in a few years we're on three, four, 500 stations. Um, I hope, uh, you know, I hope, I hope radio continues to, uh, to do, to do good. You know, it's a tough time for radio, radio right now with the new generation, because I think, you know, you grew up with radio and I grew up with radio, but especially kids these days, they grew up with, uh, with an iPad in their hand and, know, and a right? phone in their hands. So, you know, I think radio will never go away. I think just as you mentioned, I think it'll just switch to different delivery, uh, different delivery um, formats like online, etc. Yeah, so yeah. I hope I'm still doing it. I hope it's still, um, it, it's, it's still able to keep my lights on it's been a great career for me for 25 years now. I hope yeah. I can get another another 10 years out of it. 
have you thought about podcasting as a like a supplement to what you currently do because you already have the means and all of that in place yeah you know we we did a i did a podcast for a while however um when you play music, uh, the music licensing is quite expensive. Oh, so yeah, so for now, I couldn't I couldn't figure out a profitable way to do that. I did a I, I do a travel podcast, and we're yeah. on hiatus right now, but we're going to kick off another season in a couple of months, uh, and that was a lot of fun. So yeah. All right. Well, I wish you all the very best, and um, can't wait to see all the good things you're going to be doing with that. Thank you. You. Do you know that podcast is going mainstream? And that there are many people all over the world listening to podcasts daily? For example, in the U.S. alone, one in every three persons listen to at least one podcast every month. Well, that's a lot of people. Do you also know that podcast listeners tend to be more loyal, affluent, and educated? Speaking of these retro qualities, did you also know that on a monthly basis, thousands of people all over the world listen to the Marcible podcast? Hmm. Well... Do you have a business, service, event, or product you would love loyal, affluent, and educated listeners to hear about? Then look no further. To promote your services on the podcast, send an email to talktomo at mosebo.com today. Or you can visit our website at www.mosebo.com. That is www.mosibyl.com. All right. Um, so travel. Oh, my gosh. 142 countries. Okay. Um, I mean... I have read as many of your travel stories as possible, especially like the risky ones, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about that. But pray tell, what happened to you? Like, what started this dream to, like, travel the world? I mean, everyone says that, but not everyone does that, you know? So first, how did the dream get started? And just what was your first country ever? And, um, yeah, let's start with that. I have a lot of questions, but let's just start with just the questions. You know, I really wished, I wish I remembered the moment I said, yeah, I want to see every country in the world. I think I was actually like just already on the mission when I realized, oh, I, th- I, think, I think this is going to happen. I think I'm actually going to see every country in the world. But I think there were a couple of sparks that ignited the, uh, the passion and the dream, starting with when I was just a boy. And when I was in grade school in, uh, in Los Angeles, I lived places that were very multicultural from uh, uh, Los Angeles to Tucson, Arizona, to mm-hmm. Orlando, Florida. And um, as a kid, I think I was always fascinated with the Latin culture because of the, the different kids that I went to school with. And at the time, when I was a boy, when I was in elementary school, I think I was, I think I was almost afraid of it. I think it almost kind of intimidated me. But at the same time, I think I liked it. I think I was fascinated with it. And um, the first big trip I took, Brazil, mm-hmm. my early 20s. And I had traveled with my parents before on cruises. And never, never really loved, loved, loved it the way I love traveling now. And I think that's because it was very organized. I was on a boat with, you know, 30,000 other people. We would yeah. get, off, we'd, we'd get off the boat in very touristy places like Rome. And I would be surrounded with, you know, hundreds of <laughs> other Americans with <laughs> cameras around their neck. And it was fun. But I, well, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't thrilling. <laughs> it wasn't a lot. Yeah, it wasn't thrilling. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot of discovery. But um, it was in my Spanish class when I was in, in college that my teacher told me stories of, of, of Brazil and ignited a, a spark in me. And I remember the first time going back to my house and Googling Rio de Janeiro and seeing the picture of what Copacabana Beach looked like, um, oh, wow. which is gorgeous with Sugarloaf Mountain and the big Jesus and the cable car and these beautiful tiled sidewalks and palm trees and and I, I, I dreamt of going to Brazil. That was my first big trip. 
And my best friend said he would go with me. Mm-hmm. And on the first year he bailed, he, uh, he said he couldn't go. He couldn't get time off work. And I was so sad and disappointed. I said, well, let's, okay, let's go next year. He says, okay, next year I'm going to go. So next year came around another full year and we're about ready to plan this trip. And I said, okay, are you ready to go? And he said, well, no, I, I can't go. I don't have the money or I can't get time off work. And I got really angry and I said, darn it. You know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go by myself. And at the time that sounded crazy. I was in my early twenties and I'd never really traveled that many places. And I booked this trip to Brazil all by myself. And it was a huge deal at the time. I wasn't making a lot of money. So this $600 plane ticket was like a lot of money for me. Yeah. I, took two, I took two weeks off of work and I went to Brazil and I did it by myself. Scared. Really, because I wondered if I, I didn't, didn't know if I would enjoy it. And I asked myself, you know, is this going to be like going to Disneyland by yourself or a movie by yourself? Is this, mm-hmm. is this going to suck? And I, I ended up having probably the most enjoyable, enriching, exciting 10 days of my entire life in wow. Brazil. So much, in fact, that when I left, when I left Brazil that first time, I'm not making this up, I was physically in tears. I was crying. I, like I was <laughs> I felt like I was leaving a love behind. And no one you moved right there. <laughs> yeah, pe- people always joke and they say, oh, you love Brazil because of the girls. But I love Brazil for so many reasons. The food, <laughs> the food, the language, the culture, the music, the landscape, everything about Brazil, I fell in love with. So, so that was number one. So, you, you know, you ask how I got inspired to travel so much. That was number one. Um, but I kept going back to Brazil. So I went back to Brazil like 20 times before moving there. My second, uh, my, my second kind of spark was, you know, I loved Latin America, I knew Spanish, and I, now I know Portuguese. And I told myself that I wanted to see all of South America um, before I turned 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So then I took trips to Bolivia and Chile and um, Ecuador, yeah. uh, Peru, Ecuador. And that was number two, and I loved that. But then a third spark happened when I was visiting north of uh, the northern part of South America. And there are three countries in South America that are not like the rest. Mm-hmm. Mo, do you realize there's a country in South America where the official language is Dutch? Did you know that? The corner is that in Suriname, the, Suriname or something? Yes, very good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the yeah. there are three fascinating countries in, in, north, in South America in the Northeast called the Guyanas. You've got Dutch. Yes, the Guyana. French and the, yes, yes. Well, oh, no, is, so, no, no, is, not that one. Is it, the Guyana is British and then there's the French Guyana as well, right? So they used to be called Dutch Guiana, French Guiana, and British yeah. Guiana. Yes, today, yes. Today they're called just Guiana, which speaks English. You've got French Guiana, which speaks French, and you've got Dutch, Dutch Guiana, which is now called Suriname. My point is, these countries are absolutely weird and bizarre and strange, and I loved every bit of it. So, you know, I visited these countries, and you would think you're in South America. You know, these people mm. are going to speak Spanish and eat tacos, but you're, you're in a place, it's like, where am I? You, you know, for example, you go to Suriname, and all the architecture is Dutch architecture from the 1800s, and they don't speak a lick of Spanish. <laughs> and like I said, French Guiana and, 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 and Guiana. So, again, my point is that these countries were so strange and bizarre. I said, wow, this is kind of a this is kind of a appetizer of what the world has to offer. There are a lot of absolutely bizarre places around the world. And at the same time, places where you're not going to see any tourists. 
That's what I want to say. That's the beauty about what you do. Like you go to places where almost like parts unknown, like, you know, um, Bernie will always say, like, you just go to those places and you give us an opportunity to live vicariously through you, you know, but things you see, the pictures you take and the history behind them, because I'm a history buff, so. Nice. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that's, that's the reason why I think it took me a second to appreciate travel because when I did it in the very beginning with my parents, I was going to these places like Rome and I was going to places with all these tourists and it really didn't do it for me. But then you go to a place like, like, like Suriname or French Guiana, you're the only one there Mm -hmm. and everything is different and everything's weird. Everything's bizarre. You just want to taste, touch and smell everything that kind of set it off. And so that set the flame off and, um, and then, and then finally, my my last, my last, um, uh, I guess, uh, spark was Mo. I thought, and this will kind of lead into your question about yeah. the, the the riskier countries. I thought that it was impossible to visit certain countries, like North and Korea, right? <laughs> like North Korea. My first crazy country, I believe, was I think it was Libya. I think even before North Korea, I think it was Libya, and. Um, and I went to Libya and I thought, well, there's no way you can go into Libya. And I started doing research online and I found a way into Libya and um, much less tourists in Libya than North Korea. There's actually a decent amount of tourists that go to North Korea, but I ended up going to Libya and I was told by my tour agency that I was one of the first uh, foreigners to visit as a tourist after the war. And this was after Gaddafi died because, you know, this, before Gaddafi could get, yeah, yeah. Wow. This was after he was gone. And they said that I was one of, one of the first tourists to, to visit. And um, the sensation of being somewhere that you shouldn't be, it took over my body in goosebumps. And I said, it's because I'm not supposed to be here. Exactly. And, um, and that was it for me. And then I decided, you know what? I want to go to every country in the world. So there's definitely been some, sc- there's been some scarier ones that I kind of wanted to get over with. Yeah. But I actually ended up, I ended up really liking them a lot. I see why your uncle called you someone with more balls than brains. More balls and brains, exactly. I mean, oh, like when you talked about going to, was it Somalia? You know, having like an eight special ops security team with um, big guns and, you know, mm-hmm. and you being in Iran when, you know, Kasim Soleimani was assassinated. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and this yes. was just, what, two months ago? about. It's funny because going back to Somalia, it's funny because my African friends think I'm crazy too. Like, number oh, one, yeah. there's... <laughs> As you know, there's a lot of Americans that they're scared of Africa in general. Like they wouldn't even go to like Uganda because they think it's, they think it's, it's all bad. Ravish, yeah. But <laughs> even 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 some of my African friends, like, you're going to Libya, you're crazy. You know? Anyways, um, I think another thing I like about what you do with travel is you give tips. You know, like your your rambling tips section, and you know things people should avoid to do, which I really highly highly recommend to anyone listening to this. Like his blog is almost like you're reading his personal diary. You know, and I feel like with your blog, we get to also know who you are. Like when you talk about, um, I mean, the risky things you do, even though you do take a lot of risk, like you don't ride bikes, you would never get a tattoo. But everything you do, like you've done almost scary things we can do. So saying you cannot ride, you won't get on, you know, bikes and all that and get a tattoo. like, of course you wouldn't because you've done everything we would never probably do. So I thought that was just, you know, um, quite funny. And I like that. And it seems that for some of your trips as well, like you probably have like less than 40 hours, but you get so much out of it that I wonder, like, is it because you, you've researched ahead of time for going to those countries or would you credit a lot of that to the um, travel guides you work with? Well, I mean, some, sometimes I travel with a guide. Um, many times I prefer going solo, but it's almost the opposite. Um, you know, I try to do some research, but on purpose, on purpose, 
I try not to over-research a country. And the reason why is I want to be surprised. So for example, um, one of the countries that was on my bucket list that I visited in December was Myanmar. And when I landed oh, yeah, in brother. Myanmar, mm-hmm. almost all of the women w- were walking around with this thick paste, on, face. Mm-hmm. paste mm-hmm. on their face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And then I researched it and I said, why do they do that? And I learned, but if yeah. I had researched, if I had researched that before, I wouldn't have been surprised. So, oh, so I don't research a place too much because I want to leave some for a surprise. I want to mm-hmm. be surprised when I go somewhere. But to answer your question about how I see and do so much, I, yeah, I do a little bit of research. And when I'm with a guide, guides are wonderful. But what I also try to do is I try to just plop myself right down in the center of town and just walk and just walk around and just talk to people. And, you know, if I see, you know, of course, being safe and, and practicing street smarts, but if I'm walking by an old theater, you know, in Mozambique, and there's this beautiful old theater that, you know, that, that, that's from the 30s, and it's closed, but the door's open, I'll open the door, and I'll ask the security guard, excuse me, sir, you know, is it, is it okay if I, can I look around? I'm a, I'm a tourist, can I, can I look around your theater? And nine times out of 10, they'll say yes. So here I am in this amazing old building, nice. looking around, you know, looking, feeling like there's ghosts there, because this was the building that, you know, James Brown or Frank Sinatra visited in, you know, 1950 in, you know, in Mozambique. Then I'll come home and then I'll research the building and I'll say, oh, wow, I was, I was in that theater. And then I'll learn about all this. You know, I was standing in the place where, where Muhammad Ali was at, at a certain time, et cetera. So I think, I think the, the, the key word is immersion. And I think I just, I'll get to a town. Uh, and if it's a town that's safe to walk around, I'll get to a town, start exploring on foot. And I'll just talk to people and I'll go to, to local food stands and government buildings and I'll just try to get lost and I'll just try to find things. Now, sometimes I miss things. Sometimes I'll come back and then I'll research and I'll say, man, I should have went there. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's a happy medium between doing a little bit of research and then really just kind of going in there and just exploring and, and, and seeing what you run into. Plus, there's always so much you can do. Like when you talked about going to um, French Guiana and how many hours it took you to even get to your hotel room and then you had to leave the very next day. With such a limited amount of time, I can imagine that you can't do it all, you know. <laughs> Yeah, there's some, um, you know, I, I'm, for those who, who wonder, you know, why would you, why would you ever go anywhere for 48 hours? Um, I, I work full time. So I only have a certain amount of days per year. And I, I'm really, I'm excited to see every country in the world first and then go back and explore things for a longer time. But I just published an article on my blog, which is called ramblinrandy.com. I just published an article on my blog that explains my travel style and the easiest and quickest way to explain, because most people don't understand it. They really, even some people will read my blog and they'll make comments like, you know, 48 hours, that's, <laughs> that's no way to travel. It or, has you know, to work to get the money to travel, get it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll even, and it's okay, I don't mind, but they'll even insult me like, why would you ever do that? And, you know, I've learned to never, never judge people's travel styles because yeah. everyone lives a different life. Mm-hmm. But here's the answer to that. To sum up my travel, the quickest someone we just met. I would tell them this. I would say, look, imagine a, a huge buffet, a huge buffet of like 200 different foods. Imagine you've, you've never tried any of them. Every single food on this buffet is something you've never had in your entire life, okay? What are you going to do? Well, you don't have room in your stomach to get a big plate of all mm-hmm. 200 dishes, mm-hmm. nor do you have time. So what I wanted to do is I want to take a nibble out of everything first. I want to I take a nibble of all 200 dishes and take notes of what I like, what I don't like, it, yeah. what I really love, 
Yeah. And then come, okay, then come back, then take my time, then sit down and have a huge plate of mashed potatoes <laughs> and a huge plate of, uh, of lobster. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think I'm going to skip the lima beans. I had a couple of those. I didn't like them, you know? So, <laughs> That's a very good analogy. Yeah. Quite thought provoking. Um, so which kind of business is my next question? So I know one of the things you do is um, you, I'm sorry, you work for the big man. Yeah. How do you, like you said, like time and money, time would get that, but, how do you, where do you get the money to like travel, you know, around this process? Because flights are definitely not cheap. And for the type, kind of connections you do, because I've read some of your posts where you had like four, three, three to four countries to visit within a very short period of time. For those that might really want to um, just explore just your mission as well, what are some of the things you might talk to them about, you know, the monetary cost of just traveling around the world? You know, I tell people that we live in a time now where it is cheaper to travel than it ever has been at any time in history. Um, if you do your research, if you play it smart, you may not be able to see 25 countries in a year like I do, but you can find some amazing, let's talk about flights. I mean, I've seen, I took a flight from Chicago to Barcelona for I think $200, right? That's cheaper than a flight to Arizona. From, wow. from California. Sometimes wow. I'll laugh because sometimes I'll probably, sometimes I just try to go to, to uh, Arizona to visit my family and it's cost $600 and it's so much money. But yet <gasps> there are some amazing, amazing prices if you use Google flights and if you take some time and you go on off season, there are also cheap places to stay, whether you do hostels or whether you do couch surfing, you can do couch surf surfing. You can stay on someone's couch for free and not pay anything. So yeah. number one, I honestly think um, if you have a job, save some money. Um, it has to do with priorities. Don't go to the club every Friday. You know what I'm saying? Don't, uh, mm -hmm. you know, don't shop for that dress, you know, save it up. <laughs> you're right. So, so for me, it's a couple of things, but for me, it's also, it's, it's priorities. It's where am I going to put my money? I'm, you know, I'm not going to go to the club. I'm not, I don't buy expensive brand name clothes. Um, you know, I don't eat out all the time. So number one, you have to want to do it. If you don't want to do it, you're not going to make it a priority. So if you make it a priority, all of a sudden it, it becomes in reach. And, and second of all, personally with me, I've just always worked a lot. I've worked I've been a workaholic since I was, you know, I had my first job at 12 years old. I've always worked myself almost to death because I enjoy it too. But, um, but I work a lot. So I, I, I put most of my money into, into travel. So I have two jobs. I work, you know, 14, 15 hours a day. So I, you know, I, I work a lot. So I, I definitely, the, the fruits of my labor are instead of buying a fancy car, I, <laughs> I go on trips. It's, it's such a, um, I like that because I travel. I, I don't travel a lot as I, as I should. One, my passport isn't blue yet. So there's so many restrictions there, but I still travel. Mm -hmm. But I like what you mean. So at the end of the day, you don't look back at your car like, you know, oh, this car that I spent so much money buying has, you know, you just, it's just a car. But the memories and the experiences and the growth you get when you travel, you're just never the same. You tend to see the world differently. Like you tend to just have this, um, uh, what's the word? I want to call it tolerability, but tolerance, you know, for mm -hmm, people yeah. around you, because you experience other people's culture, you get to see a little bit about every place you've been to, and it just changes you, you know, it changes you, unlike, you know, saving up for a car. I mean, a car is good to have, a fancy car is good to have, do what you can do, but also prioritize traveling if you really want to, you know, be a better person, I think. So thanks it, for uh, emphasizing it, that. It, it, 
it is, it's changed me. It's made me, I believe, I hope it's made me a better person. And I say that, I say that really, really sincerely, whether it's, whether it's a person who's more accepting or a person that has um, uh, more, definitely more gratitude, you know, definitely more gratitude. When, when you see places where, you know, people are, are, are struggling just to eat or just for water. So, so much gratitude. Also patience. You realize that America is a very oh, efficient yeah. country when you go Cultural to the grocery patience. store or you go yeah. to the bank. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's been incredible. Um, I used just one quick little tidbit here. I used to really be afraid of uh, the, the religion of Islam because I really didn't know it at all. And the first time I went to Africa, the first time I went to an Islamic country was Is Senegal. Mali or which one? Senegal. Okay. It, was, it was Senegal and, and Mali on that same trip in Burkina Faso. And, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I came in really scared, like, Oh my God, are they going to kidnap me? And, and um, it's, it really opened up my heart, my eyes and my mind to say that, Hey man, these are just people like you. And they, for the most part, you know, every religion has crazy people. Every religion does, but, but the common man in basically all religions, they all they all believe the same thing so yeah 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 right true right true about that tolerance and, and i know yeah for the most part and that's what i always try to tell my american friends like you have no idea the power you have in your blue passport you can mm-hmm. pretty much get anywhere in the world within 30 days as long as you're not living there long term it's like a ticket to the world many people like i have a nigerian passport i have to apply for a visa i have to send in everything that they need including my firstborn child before they can give me visas to some countries and yeah. so that limitation is kind of, you know, it's, it, it, it abounds, but it doesn't really stop me sometimes to go to countries. But, you know, go the world and, and then to be, it helps you with cultural patience. It helps you with um, curiosity. And I think even for those that are non-Americans, yeah, travel to those places where you want to learn more about it. I mean, travel is just one way to just get into that place and, and you know, learn to know more about people, how to do stuff and see what you can take and we recycle culture and everybody gets to live all nice and nice and, you know, better. Anyways, um, Thank you for answering that question. Hey, um, hey Mo, you, you, you mentioned about your passport. That's, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't even realize that what you said, and, and, and I only learned that over the past few years, is that you, your point is that if you have an American passport, if you have a blue passport or a, or a European Union or, you know, Singapore, Germany, those passports can pretty much get you anywhere. Exactly. But there's so many other passports, uh, Middle Eastern, African, et cetera, um, I don't think Amer- I don't think many Americans even understand what we're talking about. But when you have a passport like a Nigerian passport, it's so much tougher for you to go places with your passport than it is for me. And then you think about how many Americans don't even use or don't even have a passport. They don't even have it. I'm like, what the heck? One. It's like, crazy. What the heck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you look at the Henley Index, which is what they used to measure the relative strength of a passport. The U.S. is number eight on that list. I mean, that's amazing. And with that, you can get to 184 countries without even having to get a visa. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that means? Like, yeah. I can just book a flight anywhere, anytime. Like, okay, case in point, we're going to Korea um, in May if everything clears up. But we had to um, apply for a passport to get there, for a visa to get there. And right. it took quite a while, you know, all the right. things we're asking for and things like that. I mean, I was still going to go anyways, and hopefully we can get to go. But just imagine having a blue passport. I could just easily just book my flight and, you know, not worry about um, whether I need a passport. I, I could actually go the very next day if I wanted to. So Americans listen to this. Um, use your passport. Absolutely. Because <laughs> a lot of people are dying to have that opportunity. Thanks for that. And so you went to Nigeria 
two years ago. And that was the article, the article you talked about, you know, all signs were there for me not to go to Nigeria, but I went anyway, and I paraphrased this roughly. But I loved reading that because, um, number one, I could, even though I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, I was born and bred there. I moved to the U.S. maybe about 10 years ago. But you, as a foreign, like as a foreigner visiting Nigeria, I was able to even see Lagos, Nigeria through you, even though you were there for such a short period of time. Right. And I'm sorry about the visa wars you had to go through. And I'm glad that you persisted, you know, things you did and all of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm sure you had to pay somebody. And and I'm sure the law firm firm you talked about using. But I'm just curious to know, like, um, even though Nigeria wasn't on your list, which, you know, I'll try to forgive you about that because you were just like a a (laughs) go-between, you know, I'll forgive you later on in that. Um, For those that are listening, what was you know, just your favorite thing about Nigeria? Like, I know you said it's the people, but I just wanted to talk more about just your visit to Lagos, Nigeria, without the visa problem you had. <laughs> you know, um, so the, the Nigeria trip was, you know, obviously I plan on going to every country in the world, but Nigeria popped up because I had a, um, I, I had a business trip in Morocco, I believe, yeah. and I rarely travel for work. But at instance, I happened to be in Morocco with, with, with my radio station. It was actually a contest. We, we sent some listeners to Morocco. And I had a, I had a, a vacation starting in, in South Africa. And yeah. I realized those, those two trips kind of butted up against each other. So instead of going home from Morocco and then going to South Africa, I said, wait a minute, I'll just go from Morocco to South Africa. Boom. There were no direct flights. And I found a flight through Nigeria. Well, this is great. I'll, 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 I'll visit Lagos. I'll, I'll cross. I'm going to Europe. I mean, cause you, I think that was what you said. We're going to send it to Europe and then, you know, come back to it's like, no, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> exactly. I'll just, yeah, I'll go yeah. straight down. And so I booked the ticket and I had about, I had about maybe 14, 15 days. I booked the ticket uh, through Lagos. And then the very first thing I did is I went online to get a visa and I discovered that I couldn't get a visa in time. So we'll, we'll save that story for my blog. Um, yeah. But but the little the little uh, tidbit is it, I had a really tough time getting a visa, but I, I through persistence I made it happen. So here I was in Lagos, Nigeria. I only had about a day. I think, I think it was like a layover. I think it was a layover on the way to uh, Namibia. But I had one day in Lagos, Nigeria, and Nigeria was a country for me that was I was a little a little scared going into it because I had personal friends who'd been there who said don't go. Uh, a friend of mine went there on business and said, you know, he had to be escorted with the armed guards the whole time and M16s and it's so dangerous and they nap you and a little worried. I'm like, oh, um, but I went anyway. Uh, I had the best time. I had an, I had a great, great time. You know, one of the one of the bad raps Nigeria has, even by people who live there, is that. Nigeria is the country of bribes and of scammers. So I, really, I was kind of worried going through the airport. I'm like, all right, is anyone going to shake me down for a bribe? I was happy to say that, that nobody did. And I got, to, I got to my hotel fine. I arrived in Lagos at two in the morning. So it was really, really, really late. The airport was pretty much empty. Um, I went through immigration. I had a different kind of visa. The guy kind of looked at me a little weird. I had to go in an office, fill out some paperwork, but it all worked out. And I got to my hotel, had some sleep, woke up in the morning and my guide, who was really a friend, a friend of a friend, picked me up. And I, I like to think that I spent the day as a local. And I drove around all the different, uh, the different spots that he thought was important for me to see, starting with the Nigerian art gallery, which was yeah, phenomenal. Nikkei. I'm not a big art guy. I'm not a big museum guy. <laughs> but the, the art, the Nikkei gallery was beautiful. And I love spending time there. Um, I thought it was interesting that the power went out halfway through my visit there, all of a sudden the lights went out. Went to one of the beaches, 
beaches were beautiful. Oh, like that's, um, a, that's a private one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We went to a couple of radio stations um, and I Did probably enjoyed most yeah. my meal there. I went to a local sports club and a local bar. And this place was really interesting because it was a, I think they call it a sports club, but it was really dark. They had sports games. They were watching football inside and they had music going. And I'm from Arizona and California and I'm used to spicy food because I eat Mexican food all the time. (laughs) And I remember my guide saying, okay, I'm going to order you some catfish. It's going to be spicy. Is that okay? I'm like, no problem. Bring bring it on. I'm from, I'm from California. We know spicy food. Mm -mm. Let me tell you that catfish burned. I can still taste it. Wait, wait, would it be safe that you have been dethroned from being called the taco inspector? <laughs> exactly, to the catfish inspector. And um, I, can, I think it killed half my taste buds in my mouth. I can still, I can still feel the burn. You should but, go uh, back it, so you can get like a second renewal because that's when you become very immune to spice food. And you can just- it was re- Let me tell you, though, it was really good. They brought this giant catfish. They un- it was in foil and they unwrapped the foil mm-hmm. and it was seasoned. It had the sauce on it. I had a big, you know, fries. I, I saw the picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Such yeah, a good yeah. time. People were really nice, so they were really hospitable. Um, uh, everyone was nice to me. Everybody welcomed me. Uh, again, I didn't see one tourist while I was there. Um, the traffic was was hectic and chaotic, but I had a really, really, really nice time. I enjoyed it. I'd, I'd like to go back. And sorry about your visa. I was to Nigeria. It was any consolation. I had to renew my Nigerian passport um, last year. Oh. And we don't, I mean, we go through the seven circles of hell, Dante style plus one. Like, it's so difficult renewing your passport as an Nigerian. Wow. So, um if it's of any consolation, like you having those visa troubles is like, you know, it's a mild version of what we go through and we are Nigerians. So FYI, anyway, well, you know, I, I also understand that, that, uh, that the U S makes it really hard for people to, to come as well. So, you know, again, for me, I certainly don't feel entitled to, uh, to have access to anyone's country that, you know, besides my own. So, you know, it's, it's par for the course. And I have heard that they have a, they even have a better visa system in place now. So if you're an American looking to go to Nigeria, I think they've made it even easier. So I think it, it's, yeah. it's, it's gotten better already. Yeah. And most people don't know that Nigerian passport, like Nigerian visas is one of the hardest to get, like for non-Nigerians. Yeah. You know, yeah. they make it really, really hard for you. And I know when you wrote your blog, the initial thing you had said was Nigeria was one of those um, unattractive unattractive places for foreigners to go or tourists to go to. I hope I haven't been there and just seeing the spirit of the people because the people are so hospitable. I always tell my American friends here, like you love me because I, you you, should, you love me because I'm Nigerian. You should know that because Nigerian spirit really is hospitality, is warmth, mm-hmm. it's, you know, vivacious, it's in your face, it's like open the doors, we're going to cook, cook you the best meal, we're going to dance, we're going to sing, we're just going to be happy. That's an Nigerian spirit right there. I Absolutely. hope you've been able to like experience that when you went to Lagos, just seeing the people and just when they have little or nothing and just how, you know, um, magnanimous and spirit they can be. Absolutely. 100%. All right. Good. Well, final question is country. What's the next country in your radar? I know with the COVID um, virus and all of that travel has been clamped. Condolences to you because I know that's a major hit to your um one of your life's explorations, but when this all clears out, and I hope it gets, it gets clear out, clears out as quickly as possible, where would you want to go next? Where are you going next? You know, it would be selfish of me to get too upset that my travel has been put on hold because of the coronavirus. Um, you know, obviously there's thousands of people dying and um, it's going to affect the economy, sadly, very, very, very badly in the coming months and, and, and years. 
Um, so the whole thing is just a tragedy. For selfish reasons, yes, I am so bummed out that it put travel on hold. Um, I have had a big trip planned on Thursday, which got canceled, understandingly. Yeah. Uh, but that, that uh, trip was to, to uh, Beirut, to uh, Syria, Malta, Cyprus, and Egypt. Um, I had a, a Europe trip in May, and I was going back to finish West Africa in, uh, in December. Uh, the Gambia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Liberia, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, countries like that. So hopefully we get this figured out in a couple of months because I'm ready to go. Well, well, well. Um, I like, you know, with three good stories. Um, so finally, where can people get to, um, can you talk about your blog, like your blog and whatever else you're passionate about so people can contact you if they wanted to know more about you? Awesome. I'd love for everyone to check out my blog. It's ramblinrandy.com, ramblinrandy.com, R-A-M-B-L-I-N-R-A-N-D-Y.com, ramblinrandy. My uh, Instagram is a good way to get a hold of me. Instagram is uh, slowjams, S-L-O-W-J-A-M-S, slowjams on Instagram. But if you go to ramblinrandy.com, all of my links are there, my email and uh, links to my social media. And, uh, and yeah, we can, uh, we can ramble together. Yeah, and he's someone that he's quite active. Like I noticed that almost all the comments he's responded to, you know, and he likes to have conversations going. And his archiving um process is so good. Like think of any country, like out of the hundred and something he's been to, just you know, if you typed in Rambling Africa, that rambling land dot com backslash whatever the continent is, backslash the country on Google, you're just gonna go straight to the place. Like, he's so good yeah. at you know archiving. And his stories are quite hilarious. Like he talks about things, his experience, and he uses a lot of, of, of puns and sarcasm. So I highly, <laughs> highly recommend that. Right, Thank that was you. all my question. I could go on and on just talking about stuff with you, but I think it's it's time to like you know let you go rest. But I do really thank you so much, one for responding to my request to have you on the show. I do really believe in what you do, and your your story is very encouraging, especially just going for what you want and not even holding yourself back regardless of your age and inexperience. And I think that's just something a lot of our listeners would, um, I, I'm sure they'll connect with, because I connected with that as well. And also things you do with your travels and trying to make the world a, a smaller place. And I do really, you know, um, commend you for everything you do. And thank you so very much for being on the show today. Andy. Your podcast is incredible, and I, I love the message that you're spreading. So it's an honor and a privilege, and let's uh, let's do it again soon. Yes, yes, and I'll be listening to one of four nine today, and you know, I'll see you at eight o'clock. Thank you so much, Randy, and have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Thanks, Mo. Talk to you soon. All right, all right, guys. That was the podcast with uh, Mr. Randy. Check out his blog, ramblingrandy.com, and don't forget to leave a comment to this episode if you love the content. Um, let me know what you think, and I look forward to hearing as from as many of you guys as possible. I remain your host, Mosibol, and catch you guys on another episode of the Marcibol Podcast. Bye. Bye. <laughs> awesome. That was so much fun. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Yes, thank you. Bye bye. Don't make nobody stress Few friends from me up with here to me. Me not trust people, so me choose them carefully. Them are not clean, so them can't come near to me. Can't compare to me. No, no, we don't know where tomorrow.